All right. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, David is away this week in Guatemala, where he and a team of men from our church are helping build some new classrooms for the orphanage that we help to support down there. Obviously, this trip's been planned for quite a while, and so I've known for a couple of months that I would be speaking to you this morning. But until a few weeks ago, David's sermon schedule was only complete through last weekend, and he had planned for the series on prayer to last just three weeks, which would have ended last week. David plans out his sermons far in advance, laying out the titles and the music and everything months ahead of time. So, for example, I knew in May that we would be talking about heroes all summer and that I'd be talking about Esther in July, so I had some time to sort of think it through. And all summer, I've looked at that sermon schedule, and I've thought to myself, well, thank goodness I don't have to give a talk on prayer. Until a couple of weeks ago, that is, when David announced that he'd be extending the prayer series to five weeks, and he'd be basing it on the Lord's Prayer. Despite the crushing realization that I would have to talk about prayer after all, I was at least relieved that I didn't have to come up with a topic all on my own, and I liked the Lord's Prayer, and I thought it would be a good framework. That is, until I sat in here during the first sermon, of the series and sort of thought through the way he was dividing up the phrases and worked out the dates in my head and figured out that I'd be talking about temptation and evil. (laughs) So basically, I get to talk to you this morning about prayer and about evil, and I'm not an expert on either one. I'll start with the one I know the least about, which unfortunately for me is prayer. I don't know if your elementary schools worked this way, but in mine you didn't get A's and B's and C's on your report card. You got an E for excellent, S for satisfactory, N for needs improvement, and U for unsatisfactory. Well, if God gave out report cards to each of us on our spiritual growth, I think I'd be all right in most of the stuff, but in prayer, I would definitely get a U for unsatisfactory. In fact, my prayer skills are so minuscule, and I'm such a chicken about it, that usually when I have to preach for David, I will just transcribe one of his prayers from several weeks ago and just read it out. I didn't do that this week because I figured that was pretty cheesy if I was going to give a talk about prayer and then use a plagiarized prayer. (laughs) I wish I could stand up here and tell you all about my amazing prayer life, my wonderful quiet time, and my piles of prayer journals. There are some mornings when I do get up and I spend the first time of the day reading the Bible and talking to God, and it really does change my day. For one thing, it makes me incredibly late to work. (laughs) because I'm too much of a Rip Van Winkle to actually get out of bed early to do it. But it changes my day in a good way, too. It changes my focus and my perspective. It reminds me to be grateful to God, because I love the view from my tiny back porch in the mornings. And when I take the time to pray like that, I end up praying for a lot more than I usually would. I pray more for others than I do in my usual daily scramble prayers. And I long for the discipline to get out of bed each morning and spend that first time with God but I don't have it. Instead, my prayer life, if you can call it that, is a sort of haphazard dialogue with God throughout the day. And there's value to that, too. The Apostle Paul wrote that we should pray without ceasing, and I know that there's power in any kind of prayer. But my haphazard chats with God throughout the day lack the reverence and humility that those rare morning sessions invite. I love praising God with exuberance right in the moment of joy but I need more of the steady gratitude that comes from an awareness of God's jaw-dropping power. I know it's important to share my fears and doubts with God as they come up, but I also long for the grounding experience of that morning time when I give God my day and ask for his direction in all that I do. It's definitely an area I need to work on. And since I'm a huge dork and every time I need to work on something, I will go 
buy 10 books about it and take a class on it. I took a class last fall on spiritual formation. In it, we went through what are called spiritual disciplines, which is basically just a churchy way of saying habits that help you grow in your faith. And prayer is one of those disciplines. We had two assignments on prayer, one of which I hated, and so I won't pass on to you, but the other of which I really found powerful. I tried to find the actual assignment and the article that explained it and everything, but I'm pretty sure that I, it got thrown in the trash at some point. So I can't remember the specific name of this kind of prayer, but I'll try to explain it as best I can. Basically, you select a phrase to repeat as your prayer all through the day. First, you pick a name that you want to use to refer to God, like Lord, Jesus, Father, etc. Then you pick an attribute of God that you want to focus on, such as loving or almighty or omniscient. Then you choose an action that you want to pray for. And once you've constructed this phrase, you pray it whenever you think of it throughout the day. And the goal is to sort of pray constantly as you go along. Let me give some examples to sort of make it clearer. Loving Father, guide me. All-knowing King, protect me. Jesus, my Savior, forgive me. Jesus, Lord of compassion, comfort me. Hopefully that gives a little better idea of what I'm talking about. The assignment that we were given was to pray our particular phrase as often as we could for a week and then write a paper about the experience. And I wish I'd kept that paper since it was a lot more eloquent than I'm being now, but I don't need it to remind me of how powerful that prayer and that week were. The phrase that I chose was, Merciful God, transform me. And I still use it all the time. Whenever I'm feeling angry with someone or at something... I can pray that prayer, and it helps me remember that God will work within me to make me more like Christ, if I'll only invite him to help. It's a powerful prayer. It may not change the circumstances around me, but just that simple sentence will completely shift my perspective every time. I encourage you to put together a phrase that works for you and try it for a day or two. I won't make you write a paper about it, but do give it a try and see if it's something that resonates with you. So I've read books about prayer, I've taken a class on prayer, and I've only gone about five minutes talking about it, and I've come to the end of my knowledge. <laughs> I can only tell you that I think most of us struggle with it. I think we all wish we were able to pray more, to pray with more focus, or perhaps to pray with more honesty. I often wish I could pray with fewer swear words, but I just haven't made it that far in my spiritual growth yet. The point here is that God knows. He knows we're trying, and he wants to help us talk to him more, and listen to him more. And part of that help is that no prayer is ever wasted. I'm not saying that prayer is a magic pill that will make everything better, but I am saying that praying, whether it's a little phrase you throw up at heaven every time you speed by a cop car, or it's a long night of wrestling with some horrible issue on your knees, every prayer helps you grow a little bit, and I think it helps you seek prayer out more the next time. It may not solve your problems, but it sure does help to just talk through them with someone who cares. And it also doesn't hurt that the person you're talking to just happens to be the most all-powerful being in the entire universe. And when you think about how amazing it is that this all-powerful being truly cares about every tiny detail of your life and yearns for conversation with you, doesn't that make you want to pray just a little bit more? I hope so. So that's all I've got on prayer in general. Let's dive back into the Lord's Prayer. So far in the series, we've talked about how amazing it is that the being who is most holy, most perfect, most powerful, asks us to come to him with our worries and hopes and call him Father. We've talked about how, perhaps without realizing it, we are praying that his will be done, 
Not that he bless our personal agendas and plans. Not that he work for us, but that we work for him. We talked about how we're encouraged to ask him for anything, but how we're also to depend on him for everything. Part of that is trusting that he knows the big picture, even when all we can see is one day, or sometimes one hour at a time. We talked about how, again, without realizing it, we're asking God in this prayer to treat us the way we treat other people, and how that can be a pretty terrifying thought sometimes. And we talked about how important prayer is when we are trying to forgive others, praying for help to forgive, praying for the people that we need to forgive, and being honest with God about where we are in the process are all essential elements of forgiveness. We're not saints who just love everyone on our own. We need help with that. So now we come to this tricky little sentence. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's first tackle the idea of lead us not into temptation. By asking God to lead, not to lead us into temptation, is Jesus implying that God sometimes does lead us into temptation? My answer to that is no. But luckily, you don't just have to take my opinion on it. There are three reasons why I believe God does not lead us into temptation. Number one, he says he doesn't. Apparently, New Testament Christians were just as confused about this as we are. So God clarified things in the book of James. In James 1, verses 13 and 14, he writes, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by his own desires and enticed. So that's reason number one why I don't believe God leads us into temptation. Reason number two, that idea just doesn't fit with the picture of who God is. In this prayer, Jesus tells us to call God Father. And Jesus often instructs us to consider the ways that fathers treat their children when we are trying to figure out who God is and how he will act. And as a parent, I would hope that you wouldn't lead your children into temptation on purpose. If your son were allergic to milk, you wouldn't move to a dairy farm or take him on tours of ice cream factories. If you told your daughter not to play with fireworks, you wouldn't then give her crates full of fireworks for every birthday and Christmas. Even in the fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty, when the king and queen hear the prophecy that their daughter will go into a coma when she touches a spinning wheel, they don't fill the nursery with spinning wheels. They outlaw all spinning wheels from the kingdom. So if even parents whose love for their children is only the merest shadow of God's love for us, don't thrust their children into temptations, then I think we can be confident that God doesn't either. And the third reason that I don't think God leads us into temptation is that he doesn't need to. Temptation is all around us, all the time. But wait a second, am I saying that we live in some sort of funhouse filled with vice and sin? Yes. Let me explain. <laughs> Some of you may have noticed that on Sunday mornings, I tend to hide in the back and consume strange and somewhat alarming-looking concoctions. Like this one. Well, it turns out that in the middle of cattle country barbecue belt, Texas, you have among you a raw vegan. What is that? Well, the vegan part means that I don't eat any meat or dairy or eggs or gelatin or anything that comes from animals. The raw part is even more radical. I don't eat anything that's been cooked. So what do I eat? Raw fruits, vegetables, seeds, and nuts. So this bright green potion here is not slime or antifreeze or a science experiment gone horribly wrong. It's my breakfast, and it's actually delicious. I won't make you try it, I promise. <laughs> I'm not going to go into all the science and nutrition info on why I eat this way, 
but I've been a raw vegan for over a year now, and I love it. After about the third day of eating all raw, you feel absolutely amazing. But it's a difficult choice sometimes, just because it's so dead set against the whole culture of the way we eat and what we eat and where we eat and so on. As a raw foodist, I don't have to go looking for temptation to eat cooked food. It's all around me. Restaurant ads on the radio. I drive by about four fast food places just on my commute to work, and usually I can smell the fryers going. Every time I go out with friends, every time I get together with my family, every time I watch TV or read a book, even when I come to church, cooked food is there. And a lot of it tastes good, and a lot of it's fun to eat or fun to make. Everyone else is eating it, so why shouldn't I? Well, the longer you eat only raw food, the more sensitive your body becomes, and the worse you will feel if you eat cooked food. I'm not talking about feeling bad from guilt here. I'm talking about physically ill. It's bad. <laughs> so that's where the analogy comes in. As Christians, we're also making a life choice that is completely countercultural. The Christian lifestyle, by which I mean the life that Jesus calls us to live, runs opposite of what society expects. Don't believe me? Spend an hour in a high school. Society expects teenagers to cheat, to steal, to lie, to sleep around, to drink, to take drugs, to disrespect their parents, to gossip viciously about others. When teenage Christians make the choice to live the way Jesus wants instead of the way everyone else is doing it, they face a relentless assault of mockery, hostility, and isolation. For some of you who aren't in high school, it may not feel as radical to be a Christian, but we're still making a choice that the world around us doesn't make. The choice to avoid sin as much as we can. And that is hard when sin lurks everywhere you turn. I feel amazing on raw food, but it's just a shadow of how mind-blowingly amazing it is to me to center my life on Christ. But sin is still all around me. It's on the radio, in the advertisements, in the morning show, in the, just the lyrics of the songs. Sin is all over the highway. The temptation to speed if I'm a hurry, in a hurry the temptation to cut someone off in traffic, the temptation to curse when someone cuts me off in traffic. Every time I go out with friends or get together with my family or watch TV or read a book or even come to church, sin is there. And I don't just mean big moral decisions or issues. I mean the small things, the little white lies and prideful thoughts and gossipy habits. When I was an atheist for all those years, I never thought twice about those kinds of sins. I don't even think I thought of them as bad in any way, because the society around me accepted them as part of normal behavior. But once you become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit working in you to help you become more like Christ. And part of that process is learning to avoid sin. And part of avoiding it is recognizing it. So all of a sudden, all of these things that you used to do and that culture has no problem with suddenly make you feel sick. Before I became a raw vegan, I could eat a piece of pizza and feel just fine. Now, if I ate a piece of pizza, I would be violently ill for the rest of the day. Before I became a Christian, I could tell my boss that I was late because traffic was bad, and I would feel fine. Now that I'm a Christian, even a tiny lie like that just doesn't sit right with me. I'm definitely not sin-free, but sin now makes me feel kind of sick. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that pizza is the work of the devil, although sometimes it feels like it. I'm just saying that like cooked food, sin and temptation are everywhere. So just like I don't have to work in a bakery to be surrounded by tempting cooked food, God doesn't have to lead us into temptation. We're surrounded by it all the time. 
Now, if all of that is true, then why is this phrase included in the prayer that Jesus gave us as a model for how to pray? Well, one answer is that the English word temptation carries negative connotations that the original Greek word never had. The Greek word is often translated as test or trial. In fact, you may have heard this section of the Lord's Prayer read as lead us not into the time of trial. So Jesus is instructing us to pray that God will spare us from trials. Yet all through the New Testament, God instructs us to prepare for trials, to expect them, to persevere through them, and to treasure the trials that make our faith stronger. So what gives? Why is this wacky line in this prayer? I think there are two reasons. The first is that Jesus, though fully divine, was fully human. And he had been tested and tempted by evil for 40 days in the desert before he began his ministry. So he knew what it felt like, and he knew how hard it is for humans to resist temptation. He knew firsthand what a real trial felt like. Remember his prayer before he was arrested. Please, Father, if there is any other way, don't put me through this. I think every one of us knows what it feels like to pray that prayer. So by including lead us not into temptation in the model for prayer, Jesus is recognizing our human terror of temptation. We are all afraid, deep down, of having to face something that might shatter our faith. A disease, the death of a loved one, financial ruin. We've all faced something in our lives already that we weren't sure we would make it through. And I think all of us have a deep and often hidden fear that someday we'll go through something that we won't be strong enough to handle. And Jesus is saying, it's okay. I know your deepest fear. I felt it too. And when I thought I couldn't face it, I relied on God, and he got me through it. As we read in 1 Corinthians 10.13, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. God knows we're afraid of temptation, of trials, and he wants us to be honest with him in our prayers and tell him our greatest fears. I think acknowledging such deep fears helps us rely even more on God's grace and strength and power. Another reason I think Jesus included this section in the prayer is that it reminds us to follow God, because after all, prayer is not for God, it's for us. God doesn't need our prayers. In fact, I'm sure there are days when he wishes we would quit whining at him all the time. We need prayer to remind us, to connect us, to sustain us. And this phrase, lead us not into temptation, reminds us that it is God who is in charge. God is the leader, and his way does not go toward temptation. When we lead, we head straight for sin. When we follow others, we head straight for sin. When we follow ideas like money or position or even truth and love, we fall face first into sin. But when we let God lead, our goal is not earthly temptation, but heavenly treasure. When God goes first, we head toward faith instead of folly. That's not to say that there won't still be temptation on every side, even as we follow obediently. Just this week, I've struggled with an almost overwhelming temptation to burn all my possessions and run away to Europe so I don't have to give this sermon this morning. The Christian life is just as filled with temptation as any other. But if you fix your eyes on God as your leader, if you trust him, rely on him, work hard to walk the path he takes you down, then you'll have the strength to resist more of those temptations than you ever could on your own. And you'll have the strength to come through your time of trial. In fact, as the prayer goes on, we learn that not only are we praying for the strength to make it through any trials and temptations, 
We are praying for out-and-out rescue. Deliver us from the evil one. Now, if you don't believe in Satan or the devil or whatever you want to call it, stick with me here. I didn't either for a long time. If you don't believe there's any evil in the world and that people are all inherently good and wonderful, then you might just want to take a little nap during this part. Anyone who's experienced an elementary school recess knows there's evil in the world. My beloved and angelic little nephew, who's not yet two, once smacked me full in the face just to see what my reaction would be. It was ow, and he thought it was hilarious. Evil exists, and it's everywhere. Watch the news, read a history book, spend some time with a cat, and you'll know what I mean. And it seems pretty clear to me that evil is not just human. Sometimes a really mean thought will just pop into my head, and it's never anything I would purposefully think. It just pops in there. Just as a lot of the amazingly good things that happen seem divine to us, a lot of the evil that has been perpetrated throughout history has a power that seems other than human. And yet, society has a hard time believing in a devil. The images that society comes up with to portray the devil make him seem ridiculous, small, a joke. Think of how tiny he is in pictures and cartoons, in little, little red goblin type thing with horns and an absurd pitchfork, which I was never quite sure what that was for. He's laughable, not to be taken seriously. When I was coming to Christ, I didn't have a lightning bolt moment where all of a sudden I believed in everything. Instead, I cracked the door the tiniest bit and said, God, I'll give you a chance to convince me you're out there. And I then spent several months devouring every book I could find, wrestling with the questions of what I believed. First, I got on board with the whole idea that there's a creator. It took me a while longer to believe in Jesus. Then I had to struggle with some pretty complicated theological issues. And the very last thing I was able to wrap my brain around was the idea of Satan. Somehow, society is okay with you if you believe in a God, a little bit more wary when you start talking about Jesus, but people think you're downright nuts if you start talking about the devil. When I was in high school, one of the most popular sketches on Saturday Night Live was the church lady, a very prim and very judgmental nightmare of a woman. Her habit of attributing everything, from Madonna's behavior to the benevolent character of Santa to the work of the devil, was encapsulated in her famous catchphrase, could it be Satan? And that was a joke, a wildly popular joke. In the backlash from the fire and brimstone, scare you straight preaching of the early 20th century, society and Christianity have discounted the devil altogether. And isn't that kind of sneaky? Because if you don't think the evil one exists, then why would you be on your guard against him? And why would you pray to be delivered from something that you don't think is out there? One of my favorite movies is The Usual Suspects. In it, one of the characters is describing a truly horrific villain whose ruthless power reaches across the globe, whose network of evil is so widespread that hundreds work for him without even knowing it. And the character explains that a huge part of that criminal's power is the fact that most people discount his existence. They think he's just a legend, a story to tell kids so they'll behave. And he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. I believe the devil does exist, and that he's working against God all the time in very destructive ways. But I believe that because I wrestled with it. I spent time pouring through scripture and puzzling it out. And I'm not saying you have to believe in the devil, but I would urge you to read what God has to say about it, instead of just going on what you've learned from the world. Whether or not you believe in Satan, 
You know there's evil in the world. And I hope you know that God is much more powerful than that evil. God has the power to deliver us from that evil. We can't do it alone. We can't just wake up one day and decide not to be proud or discouraged or lustful or dishonest and have it actually stick. Try it. I think we probably all have on New Year's Day at some point and see how far you get. But with God's help, we can move away from sin more and more. God's strength can deliver us from despair, from addiction, from pain. It won't always. Keep in mind that thy will be done. God's goal is not for us to be always comfortable in this life. His goal is for us to be eternally blissful in close relationship with him. And discomfort is often a stop along that road. But ultimately, God has delivered us from evil. He sent Jesus, who took away the sin of the world and paid our debt. He went down to the grave and triumphed over death. He defeated evil by whatever name you want to call it. He freed us from sin's power. He rescued us. Yes, sin is all around us. But in the big picture, it has already been defeated. We are forgiven, and we can look forward to an eternity spent with God in a heaven that has no sin. And even with that amazing promise and hope to look forward to, we still complain and we fear and we doubt. And Jesus knew that we would. So with infinite love, he gave us this model of prayer. He let us know it's okay to fear temptations and trials. He reminded us to rely on God during those times to focus on the one who leads us toward good and not toward evil. He assured us that it is okay to pray for protection and deliverance from the evil that's in the world. And then he went to the cross to keep that promise of rescue. Let us pray. Merciful and almighty God, we are so grateful for your love and understanding. We confess that we don't pray as often or as diligently as we would like. And we pray that you will help us come to you more and more. We thank you for the example you gave us through the life and words and sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. And especially for this prayer that teaches us more about who you are and how much you love us. Lord, help us to seek you in all that we do. And help us to rely completely on your protection and on your deliverance. We are awed by the immensity of your love for us, Lord. Help us extend that love to everyone we meet. And don't let evil derail us in our work for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will stand and join me in one.